Tonight's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which can be found on page 1152 in the Church Bibles, and starting at verse 2. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is the word of the Lord. Nicola, thank you so much for reading our passage. Good evening, folks. It's good to see you all. Remember how a few weeks ago I said, I always get the hard passages, and maybe you weren't sure? <laughs> hey, it's God's word, and it is good for us. So let me pray for the Lord's help tonight. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that all of it is relevant uh, for us today as believers we pray that you'd help us. Um, this passage, in some ways, is controversial. Uh, and so, Father, we do pray that you'd help us to understand it, give us soft hearts to um, receive what it's saying and to obey it and to see how it's applicable to us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is a woman? What is a woman? Is there a more polarizing question today than this one? On International Women's Day, the Labour politician Yvette Cooper was asked on Times, Radio, on Times Radio, are you comfortable defining what a woman is? She said, I think people get themselves down rabbit holes on this one and refuse to answer the question. And he tried again and again, the, the, the interviewer, and she would not answer the question. When conservative MP uh, Nadim Zahawi said uh, a woman is an adult human female, he found himself in hot water. He was called names, 
who was accused of inciting hatred and was forced to leave the university campus he was visiting. And it's not only politicians who are facing questions about gender. The CV was in the news earlier this month for not providing a definition of a woman when asked to. Our society is one that is increasingly unclear on gender, isn't it? We now question that which, not too long ago, pretty much everyone thought was self-evident. And not only is the world we live in muddled in the sense that it's unable to, to provide definitions of gender, we also see this gender muddledness uh, play out in terms of how men and women behave and even dress in society. A couple of years ago, a British pop singer Harry Styles was the first man to wear a dress on the cover of Vogue magazine. And he's since been in other photo shoots wearing women's clothing, uh, like dresses, stockings, and high heels. Now, of course, cross-dressing is nothing new. There have always been people who've done it. What's different today is how, how, much, how celebrated it is, even in terms of TV programs. And in, in, in addition to all of this, uh, fashion today is becoming less and less binary. So recently, a gender-fluid fashion has been growing in popularity. So we see this in the London Fashion Week, for example, and how it's moving away from uh, showcasing men's wear and women's wear to showcasing gender-neutral clothing. And clothing brands are starting to follow their lead. So luxury, luxury brands like Gucci uh, have introduced gender-fluid collections, and even high street brands uh, like Zara and H&M are growing their unisex ranges. And yesterday I was browsing the Uniqlo website, and they now have a genderless range. All of this to say that the boundaries in our world between men and women are being blurred. And this blurring is only accelerating. Today, we struggle to, to explain what makes a man a man and a woman a woman. And we don't know how men and women are to be different in how they look or conduct themselves within society. In short, our society is flattening gender distinctions. And this raises the question, is this a good thing? Is this a good thing? Surely, the removal of some gender distinctions in history is incontestably good. I think we can all agree that it's a good thing that the right to vote today no longer belongs exclusively to men. But what if I were to come to church next Sunday to preach in address stockings and high heels. Suppose I, I thought to myself, if women have the right to, why can't I? Would that be a good thing? We're going to see in our passage tonight that the answer is no, it wouldn't. Some gender distinctions are good. 
And Paul is going to give us several reasons for why some gender distinctions are indeed good. And here's why I think he's doing this. It seems like some in the church in Corinth were beginning to abandon some gender norms. Now, why might they have been doing this? They may have thought that being a Christian gave them the right to. As we've seen in earlier parts of this letter, there were people in the Corinthian church who were saying, I have the right to do anything. It seems like the Corinthians knew that Christ brings freedom. But it appears that they were misapplying this freedom. Having freedom in Christ does not mean that you can just live however you want to. Paul has been clarifying to the church in Corinth what following Jesus actually looks like. He's been making the point that following Jesus isn't about living your life in a way that will necessarily suit you. It's it's about following the example of, of Christ crucified. Jesus didn't lay down his life because it suited him. He laid it down for the benefit of others. And Paul says that Christians are to live their own lives for the benefit of others. We saw that last week, and we're going to see more of that in this section we're in. This new section in chapters 11 to 14. And these sections are about how we ought to conduct ourselves as the church when we meet corporately. So how does Paul begin this new section? He does it by telling the church not to forsake gender distinctions. And brothers and sisters, because of where we are as a society today, I really can't think of a more relevant topic. Is it okay for us to ignore gender distinctions? Paul says no. Don't ignore gender distinctions. And he gives us three reasons. The first is this. You are to honor your head. By the way, this is the point um, we're going to spend the bulk of our time in tonight. So by the end of this point, please don't think, oh gosh, we've still got two points to go. This is where we're spending most of our time. Let's read from verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her her head shaved, then she should cover her head. The key verse in our passage tonight is verse 3. It seems like the Corinthians hadn't quite understood what it says. So Paul says that a man's head is Christ, that a woman's head is man, and that Christ's head is God. What does it mean to have someone as your head? 
It means that in some sense, that person has authority over you. Now, some people have argued that head in this passage doesn't mean authority, but source, like the source of a river. But I don't think that makes much sense. Uh, Firstly, that's not how the word is usually used in the New Testament. In fact, I can't think of any um, instances in, in, in which it is used in that sense. And secondly, how can God be Jesus's source? That, that, that would seem to me to undermine Jesus's eternality. And it gives the impression that he had some beginning point. And as Christians, we just don't believe that. Jehovah's Witnesses do. As Christians, we do not believe that. So I think head as authority makes far more sense. Now, friends, to say that a man's head is Christ isn't controversial, is it? What about saying that a woman's head is man? In our day and age, that is extremely controversial. And I think that's the case because we, we tend to think that this denotes that somehow women are inferior to men. But here's the thing. As Christians, do we believe that Jesus, the Son, is inferior to God the Father? No, we don't. Even though God the Father is said to be the head of Jesus, and it is Jesus who submits to the Father, not the other way around, we still believe that the Father and the Son are equal. The differences in how they relate to each other do not mean they're un equal. Similarly, any differences in how husbands and wives relate to each other also do not mean that they're not equal. By the way, I I said husband-wife relationship because I think that's what Paul has in view. So some commentators think that this passage teaches that a man is, is head over women in general. But I think the headship we see in the Bible is usually uh, in the context of the husband-wife relationship. So to give you an example, Ephesians 5 says, Wives, submit to your own husband. It doesn't say submit to men in general. And then Paul gives his reason. For the husband is the what? Is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. So that's the biblical pattern. The husband is the head of his wife. Now, since he's the head, he has some degree of authority. Now, it's important um, to point out that this does not mean he can be domineering. In the, in the Ephesians passage I just shared, Paul goes on to tell husbands that they are to love their wives. And he tells them how they are to love them. He tells them to love their wives as sacrificially as Christ loved the church. So so husbands are never given permission to misuse the authority they are given. Instead, they are to, to lead their wives by loving them in a selfless and sacrificial way. So rather than the headship of 
the husband that we learn about in the Bible being a bad thing, it's actually a beautiful thing. When people criticize the husband's headship in the Bible, I think it's because they haven't properly understood it. Imagine just how healthier and happier marriages in this country and around the world would be if more men were actually imitating and following Christ's headship and loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Friends, when, friends, headship, when done Christ's way, is an incredible blessing. Okay, we've, now, we've thought about headship. We now need to think about what it means not to dishonor your head. So Paul first talks about how a man should not dishonor his head, who is Christ. So he says in verse 4 that a man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors Christ. Folks, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, tonight's passage is extremely hard to interpret in terms of the details. Not in terms of the big picture, but in terms of the details, it's really hard. So what does it mean, for example, uh, for someone to cover their head, to have their head covered? It could mean wearing a head covering, or it could mean having long hair. So the Greek could be translated either way. And that's why you've got such a long footnote there for verses 4 to 7. That is the longest footnote in the New Testament, in the NIV. So, I don't think we can know for sure which of the two Paul has in mind. So he could be disapproving of men in church having long hair, or he could be disapproving of men in church wearing some type of shawl over their heads. Either way, the point is the same. Whether it's having long hair or wearing a head covering, the point is this. In that culture, it dishonors Christ. In that culture, it dishonors Christ. And here's why I think it does. Whether it's a long hair or the head covering, at that time, in that society, it would have been deemed to be characteristic of women. It would, be, it would dishonor Christ because the man would be displaying himself in a way that people would normally associate with the opposite gender. So Paul says in verse 14, Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Why is it a disgrace to him? Seems a bit, bit much. Because in that particular culture, growing long hair was what women did, not men. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that men shouldn't dishonor Christ by looking or behaving in ways that are not gender appropriate. And whether that's having long hair or, or wearing a shawl, the man would have been clearly communicating to the rest of the church and society that he was violating the gender, uh, the gender norms of the day. Let's move on now to, to how a woman was not to dishonor her head, who is her husband. 
So Paul says in verse 5 that a woman dishonors her husband when she prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. What's the context here? The formal church gathering. That's why Paul is saying praying and prophesying. This is about how Christians are to, to behave when they meet as a church. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that what Paul is saying applies exclusively to church gatherings, but that it applies especially to church gatherings. So what does Paul say? What does Paul mean when he says that a woman dishonors her head by not wearing a head covering? Again, it's hard to know for sure, but what is most likely is that back then, a married woman would traditionally wear a shawl over their heads, which signified that they were married. By not wearing a shawl, a married woman might have caused people to think that she was, in fact, single. Now, why might that have been an issue? Well, for one, you can imagine if how a husband is not going to feel very honored if his wife is going around communicating to the world that she's not married. And Paul says in verse 6 that a woman who doesn't wear a head covering might as well shave her hair off. Do you know why he says that? Shaving someone's hair off is what you do to a woman who'd committed adultery. It was a way of publicly shaming her. And it would also shame her husband. So what's the connection? The people who know this woman, they might start wondering why she's suddenly hiding the fact that she's married. They might, for example, conclude that she's hoping to meet someone else. It could have been perceived um, as the equivalent today of a married woman creating a Tinder profile. She did that. What, what question would that raise? Why? why? Why would you do that? So in these verses, Paul is effectively saying, if you're a married woman and you're not going to wear a head covering, you might as well just shave your hair off. Not wearing a head covering is massively dishonoring to your husband, who's your head. And if you really don't care about not honoring him, hey, why not just go ahead and completely shave your hair off? I suspect that Paul knows that no woman would do that. In a shame and honor culture, that would be the end of her reputation. Now, why might some of the women have ditched their head, their head coverings? I don't think it would have been because, well, I don't know for sure, but I don't think it would have been because they had impure motives. Perhaps they ditched them because they thought their newfound freedom in Christ enabled them to. Hey, we're free. Saved by grace, not the law. What Paul is showing them is that the freedom we have in Christ does not do away with gender distinctions. Men are still to conduct themselves in 
a way that honors their head, Christ. And women are still to conduct themselves in a way that honors their head, their husband. Now, the gender distinctives we have today are slightly different to the ones in the first century, aren't they? Today, a married woman doesn't communicate that she's married by wearing a head covering. So if married women come to church next week wearing a head covering, I've completely failed in communicating this passage. Why should we not ignore gender distinctions? The first reason is because you ought to honor your head. The second reason is this. Gender distinctions are part of God's created order. Gender distinctions are part of God's created order. Have a look at me at verse 7. A man ought ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. Uh, Just notice there, it doesn't say woman is the image and glory of man. Woman is the image of God just as much as the man is. Let's continue. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. I think that because of the angels there means the angels are watching when we're worshiping. I think that's what it means. Why do gender distinctions matter? Because in Genesis 1 and 2, God created a man and a woman. God didn't create two men or two women. He created a man and a woman so that they would complement each other with their unique gifts and strengths. So when we ignore or minimize gender distinctions, we are effectively telling God that he might as well have made us hermaphrodites. Genesis 1:27 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created him, no, them. Male and female, he created them. Folks, when we flatten the differences between men and women, we are in a sense marring the image of God. I recently heard about a 14-year-old girl who goes to an all-girls school in London who shared how the majority of her classmates identify as non-binary. Teenagers, you are at the cutting edge of gender issues. I'm sure many of you have non-binary or transgender um, schoolmates. Now, please do not take what I'm saying tonight as an encouragement to be judgmental towards them. You ought to love them. But I hope that you can see how they've been misled, and why as a Christian, you would do well to resist the temptation to follow their lead. It, folks, if I'm honest, it is heartbreakingly tragic that people today are rejecting the gender 
God gave them. The maleness of men and the femaleness of women communicate to us something about who God is. God chose to make humans both male and female so as to give us a fuller picture of himself. I think our our disposition to flatten those differences shows just how far our rebellion against God has come. It's as though we're protesting, punching our fists in the air and saying, God, we refuse to be your image. God created us male and female. And it's delightful that he did. Let's not buy the lie that non-binary or, or androgyny is the human ideal. It's not. Friends, God knew what he's doing when he made us, and when he made us male and female. Now, I appreciate that um, today we find it offensive that wives are called to submit to their husbands. And although I do think this is partly because we have a natural bent to rebelling against God, I think it's also because, sadly, we've seen men misuse the authority they've been given. This is why I think Paul says what he does in verses 11 to 12. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. What is Paul communicating here? Husbands, don't get too big for your boots. Remember just how dependent on women you are. Without women, you literally wouldn't be here today. So your delegated authority is never an excuse to misuse it. You need women just as much as they need you, if not more so. Okay, so why are we not to ignore gender distinctions? One, because we ought to honor our head, and two, because gender differences are part of how God made us. Finally, we are not to ignore them because of apostolic authority. That's our third point, apostolic authority. Let's read verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I don't know if you've, um, if you've ever come across people who say, I follow Jesus. I don't follow Paul. I find that interesting because Paul was chosen as an apostle by whom? By Jesus. Jesus is the one who commissioned Paul to proclaim and teach the gospel. So listening to Jesus requires also listening to Paul, doesn't it? Jesus wants us to listen to Paul. So when Paul says we have no other practice, he's saying that maintaining godly gender distinctions is part of what it means to live as members of God's church. 
Now, it does seem as though the Corinthian Christians are in some ways at least living according to what they'd learned from Paul. So you might have noticed that in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But by verse 16, we learn that they're not holding to all of the church traditions. And that's an issue, isn't it? Paul isn't just some random person. He's an apostle chosen by Christ. So if we're not listening to him, we're actually being disobedient to God. As Christians, we ought to follow the instructions for the church that have, that have been laid down for us by the apostles. So friends, if, if we believe that gender is just a social construct and not at all tied to biological sex, not only are we saying that Paul is wrong on gender and denying his apostolic authority, we're also disobeying God. We live in a world that hates gender distinctions. As the boundary lines between male and female get increasingly blurred in our society, folks, you can bet that the church will face growing pressure to follow suit. This is why we need to remember that gender is God's idea. Now, how do we apply this passage today? It's really hard. (laughs) And uh, it's hard because, as I said, our culture is so different from first century Corinth. Furthermore, gender norms are constantly changing. For example, pink used to be a boy's color. But now it's considered a girl's one. So I'm loath to give direct examples, as it probably won't take very long for them to be outdated. So rather than fixating, getting fixated on specific examples, I think the most important thing for us to do is to remember the spirit or the attitude. So asking ourselves a question like this, is the way I behave uh, gender appropriate? Is the way I dress gender appropriate. I think if we're asking ourselves uh, that question, I think that is a good way to apply this passage. And I suspect that if Harry Styles were asking himself that question, that he wouldn't be dressing the way he does. Folks, if men own their maleness and women their femaleness, it glorifies God It's how he he created us. Men and women together give us a more complete picture of who God is. So let's not ignore or reject our God-given gender. If you're male, it's a beautiful thing. If you're female, it's a beautiful thing. Let's embrace our gender and the gender distinctions and thereby honor our heads. Brothers and sisters, no doubt, all of us can think of ways in which we have failed to live faithfully, either as men 
or with women. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer to confess to God how we haven't lived up to his ideal for us. But not only to do that, but also to thank God for the forgiveness that he offers us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that all of your word is relevant and applicable to us. We thank you for this passage. We admit and confess that we find it tricky and hard and difficult. Uh, But Father, we do pray that you would help us to see um, how we might apply the truth of this passage to our own lives. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't be judgmental towards people, um, particularly towards people who are transgender or non-binary. We pray that we would love them. And Father, we also pray that we wouldn't be legalistic about how we apply these things. We are saved by grace, not because we live, um, because we do this or that. We are saved purely because of your grace towards us, which we do not deserve. So Father, we pray for, um, we pray for our society. Uh, we do pray that you would heal it of its spiritual blindness. It's, it breaks our hearts to see that People can't see something that is so clear. People can't even define today what is a woman or what is a man. And so, Father, we do pray that people, you would open people's eyes and that people would see that the way you've made, you've made us is good. And, Father, above all, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that he perfectly honors you, his head. And we pray that we would keep looking to him. And we ask this in his name. Amen.